This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from Philippians 2, verses 6 through 8, which is found on page 980 in your pew Bibles. Philippians 2, verses 6 through 8. If you're able, will you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Well, good morning. Hey, my name is Ricky. I'm one of the pastors here. Let me pray for us and then we'll jump in. Jesus, I I was sitting over here and all these songs are directed to us looking at you. All these songs we just sang this morning are about you, they're aimed toward you, about, uh, about you coming and taking our burdens, about you coming and doing things for us, you living uh, a particular life, dying a particular death, all these sorts of things. And we can have this temptation this morning to read or say those things or sing those things and not actually like come to grips with the scandal that's coming out of our mouth. <laughs> yeah. Like, what on earth was God doing wrapping himself in flesh? It is shocking. It is startling. It is, I, I don't know, like I, I know this isn't theologically right maybe, but I just feel like it's wrong. What were you doing coming as Jesus? And like, I'm, I'm thinking about like, our impulse, we live our lives trying to take on more. How can I, like when we, when we let our minds drift and we wonder about things, my mind drifts to how do I solve this um, discomfort in my life? How do I resolve this trouble in my life? How do I make things bigger and better and cleaner and all these sorts of things? I want to like remove weakness. I want to remove discomfort. I want to take on things that make me feel elevated. And that was not your impulse. You did the opposite of that. What what does that show us about the love of the Father? Would you show us that this morning? Would you get me out of the way? Would you elevate your word in front of us so that we would see you as you are, that we would marvel at your love and that we would see the Father's love for us in new and powerful ways that would change us, that would make us like reoriented to be like you, that we would be humbled, that we would be lowly, that we would be servants of Christ in your kingdom. God, would you do that among us this morning through your word in the next 40 minutes? Would you captivate our hearts by what you revealed to us in your word this morning? I pray in your name. Amen. All right. So we're in this series of looking at the person of Jesus. And two weeks ago, we looked at the deity of Jesus and concluded that Jesus is in fact fully God. 
Last week, we uh, walked through the humanity of God and concluded that he was fully man. And this week, we're kind of putting those two things together. We're putting those two realities together, this king who wraps himself in the ordinary. Man, as I was kind of thinking through this idea this week, I kind of thought through, um, like you've, you've read the books, The Lord of the Rings, or you've at least watched the movie, right? Like these, these um, hobbits are given this huge mission, this grand mission to take this ring to destroy across Middle Earth, right? And they're on this mission. In the first movie or book, um, whichever one you watched or read, I never read the books, but um, I've, t- I've been told they're good. But, you know, a couple hours and I was done watching the movie. So um, anyway, they're going across Middle Earth and lo and behold, they come across this, mis- like this mystery figure, ranger. They, they come to uh, connect with this ranger who's mysterious and dark, and he joins them and helps them begin with their travels. And they start learning things about him over time, right? That uh, there are those who call him Strider. And over time, you get little clues and inklings that this man is more than just a ranger. He is, in fact, Aragorn, the king Aragorn. And you come to discover that this king has wrapped himself in the ordinary and he's mysterious. Or you get these stories of like, even think about uh, a story like the Lion King, right? You have this king who is take, like he's walked away from the pride. He's walked away from his father's lands and he's living among the riffraff and he's pretending to be something other than that. He's this king incognito. And then they come to discover he's in fact the king. And over and over, you see these stories and we're fascinated by this idea of royalty stooping down and becoming incognito among the ordinary. But Aragorn and the Lion King stooped down to run from something, right? They stooped down to get away from something out of fear. But what we see here is Jesus does something altogether different. Jesus was the king on high come wrapped in human flesh in an act to show us the very nature of God. He wasn't running from something. He wasn't self-protecting. In fact, he chose to stoop down. Look at verse seven. Open up your Bibles. Let's look at this. Philippians chapter two, verse seven. If you've opened them up or if you've closed them, open them back up. Philippians chapter two, verse seven, it says that Jesus emptied himself in the likeness of men. And it also says that he humbled himself in obedience. Man, this should just absolutely stun us. Like this should just like, this doesn't make any sense. This is perplexing. This is one of those most striking assertions in scripture. This theological truth that both connects the glory of God in eternity past and probes the mystery of the incarnation. Like we are, we are at some of the, the most perplexing, beautiful uh, statements in all of scripture that God emptied himself and humbled himself by becoming a man. This morning, I want us to take the reality that Christ was both divine and human. And we'll see that when you put those two natures together in one person, Jesus of Nazareth, they show that our God is a self-emptying, loving God. And we're gonna do that in two movements. We're gonna look at the heights from which Jesus stooped. And then we're going to take a look at the depths to which he stooped. 
Okay, we're gonna look at the heights from which Jesus stooped and the depths to which he stooped. And my hope is that today then doing this, we will marvel at his kingship. We will marvel at this king who selfishly, self-givingly loved us. He was motivated to do far more beyond our comprehension by moving toward us in this self-giving love. And that will end our time looking at how this absolutely changes the way we relate to one another in humility. So let's begin with the height from which Jesus stooped. So let's look, let's read our whole passage again from beginning to end. Philippians 2, verse 6. Though Christ Jesus was in the form of God, he was in the form of God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, though, but indeed himself, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death. On a cross. So, if we're going to understand anything about Jesus' emptying, about him stooping down to us, then we must understand the divine dignity and glory that forever characterized the Son of God. Before he was ever born to a virgin in Bethlehem and given the name Jesus. So, verse 6 says that Jesus was in the form of God and that he had equality with God. So, this story begins in the far reaches of eternity past. It, it, be, it begins before the world began, infinitely beyond our comprehension and imagination. It's like Paul is saying, hey, you've heard all these like firsthand testimonies about the life of Jesus. You've heard my testimony of how I saw Jesus face to face. And even Matthew describes him as not much to look at physically, but you have to understand this Jesus Christ before he existed as a human, he was clothed in divine majesty and splendor in the form of God and sharing God's glory, the shining light of the glory of God. Saying Jesus was in the form of God should bring to mind passages like Hebrews 1.3 that says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Colossians 1.15, Jesus being the image of the invisible God. And even Jesus tells us that he had this sort of glory with the Father before the world began. Jesus says of himself in John 17.5, glory I had with you. He's talking to his Father in prayer. Glory I had with you before the world began. Here's my point. Jesus is God to the same degree as God the Father. He has the image, he has the glory, he has the likeness, he has the form to go along with it. He had all the majesty of deity, performed all of its functions, enjoyed all of the privileges that come with it. He was adored by his father. He was worshiped by the angels continuously. He was invulnerable to pain and frustration and embarrassment. His supremacy was total. His satisfaction complete. His blessedness, absolutely perfect. He didn't have to go out and search for any of this stuff. It was all his and it was secured as his forever. It was the way things were and it had always been that way. And there was no reason that any of this would ever change, ever. And something did change. Something changed. The text tells us that Jesus, though he had all of this, 
because he was in a fact the form of God, because in fact he was in the form of God, he did not count this type of equality with God a thing to grasp after. Now, there's a whole lot of ink written about this little phrase right here. He didn't count equality with God a thing to grasp. Tons of ink over this one sentence because it's actually really, really, really important that we understand this correctly. Throughout the church history, there's been tons of debate and many different heresies that have come around and debunked over the centuries. Many have used this passage and have said that Jesus did have equality with God, but in order to take on humanity, he emptied himself of his divinity, or at least parts of his divinity. Over time, he emptied himself and he let some of that go. They say that Jesus let go some of his equality with the Father and even some of his divine nature the part of him that separated from him from all of creation. This seems to have like solved the mystery, right? Like how can, right? Here's the mystery. How can God infinite be taking on something that's finite, right? They don't go together. That's a mystery. It's an enigma. How do you do that? You lower one or the other. You solve the mystery. You solve the problem. But the church's historic confession is that Jesus walked the earth he died and rose again being fully God and fully human. And because it seems impossible for these two things to exist in one person, it's our temptation to diminish either Christ's divinity or his humanity, right? Like when we're reading the gospels or reading some of the New Testament letters, when we see places where Jesus is, you know, appears to be weak or he's limited or up against something, we go, ah, see, he wasn't fully God. Or we come to places where just thundering control over like storms and healing and all these things, we go, well, that's because he wasn't fully human. He wasn't limited in the ways that we are. And we try to diminish one or the other. But if we, if we diminish one or the other, we lose the benefits for why Jesus came. We lose the fact that he needs the power to save, or we lose the reality that he comes as a human and therefore his saving work uh, if he's less than human, is limited in its effect for humanity. We lose the gospel. We might be tempted to think that Jesus just switched back and forth between God and human like a light switch, but that would be a mistake. You see, Jesus did not express his deity at times and then his humanity at other times. His actions were always those of being fully God and fully human, always. For example, he still had the power to be everywhere, right? He was still omnipresent. However, as an incarnate being, he was limited in that power by being in a human body. He knew everything. He was omniscient and had to grow in that knowledge in connection with his human brain that grew gradually in his consciousness. <sighs> How does that work? Your brain is starting to get numb. And Ron has said this the last couple of weeks. Hey, we're we're pressing against places where there's mystery. Like we're in the realms of like stepping toward things like the Trinity where you can totally explain it only this far. And you reach this like edge that you can't go any further. And here's the, here's the reality. I wanna encourage you. Like we can't put God in a Petri dish here, right? We can't get to the bottom of every piece of who God is and how he, like who he is and how he is. If you could put God in a Petri dish and like, poke around at him and look at him from every angle, like, what does that make God, right? More, here's another question. What does that make you? 
Like, how do you view yourself in this? He wouldn't be worthy of our worship and you would have a pretty bloated view of yourself if that were even possible. But we are able to wait out here a little bit. So let me give you one illustration that kind of is, that I find helpful. Think of a world-class sprinter, an Olympian, the best sprinter the world has ever known, the fastest man humanity has ever seen. And this afternoon, he's gonna be at Loose Park doing a three-legged race with me, right? Like, he may be held back a little bit. Um, The world's fastest man three-legged racing with, even if he's three-legged racing with the second fastest man in the world, he is not going to break any records this afternoon. He's not going to, right? Because he's limited. Is he still the fastest man in all the world? Or think of a boxer, a boxer going into a fight, the champion with his dominant arm tied behind his back. Is he still dominant? Isn't he still powerful? Isn't he still the greatest boxer? At any time, they can loosen the straps. At any time, they can untie them. At any time, they can live into their potential. And just like that, Jesus, just as the runner and boxer could loose those ties, but chooses to restrict themselves, Jesus restricted himself in the incarnation through voluntary, self-chosen limitation. He didn't count equality with God, something to grasp after. See, unlike the world they lived in, unlike the world we live in, unlike all those, um, the way that we want to express success is to give as much money and power and fame. The way we want to express and display our significance is by getting as much as we can and showing and displaying how significant we are, right? Because we lack, because we don't have it. And so we have to stack it up. But Jesus being in the form of God, being fully divine, being fully equal with God the Father, he didn't have to do that. He didn't have to prove anything. He didn't have to grab things and stack them up in order to make himself seem significant to us. He didn't count being tied up in human form as diminishing to who he is. So he doesn't have to use his equality with God as a way to prop him up. He doesn't have to use that to prove anything. Paul's telling us that Jesus doesn't use his significance He doesn't use this significance as a perk to exploit his creation. In other words, the issue here isn't whether or not Jesus gains equality or whether he keeps equality. Jesus has equality with God and there's no question of losing it, period. What's being expressed here is his attitude to it. How did he view it? What's his disposition to it? And the point here is, Christ has equality with God, so he has the rights. He has the rights to be recognized. He has the rights to be revered, to be served by the angels, to be immune to poverty and pain and humiliation. Had he been motivated by vainglory, he would have insisted on these rights being his. He would have insisted that they were rightfully his. Instead, he didn't relate to these rights as something to lord over us. He didn't see these rights as something to cling to and demand and grasp onto in order to display who he really is. Think about this. Like, um, think of Revelation 13, 8. It says that God's plan for Jesus was to come and die. And they made that plan before the creation of the world. So here's where my mind goes, like in sermon prep. I'm imagining that conversation. I don't know if they had a conversation, 
but let's say they did. How does that conversation go before the creation of the world between God the Father and God the Son? Like, can you imagine how that went down? Like, Jesus could have countered that plan. Like, okay, God, I get what you're saying. Wrap myself in flesh, get weak, get vulnerable, be abused, suffer. Sounds like a great plan. Um, or, or, now just hear me out. Or, or I show up with clouds and thunder and like booming and all these sorts of things. Like I, I show up with like fire and smoke and the fear of God, much like we did when we came down on Mount Sinai. What if I show up like that? Or why don't we just fast forward to Revelation? I'll show up in all white. I'll show up on a horse, fire in my eyes. I'll rescue people. I'll cut down everyone else. I'll come in might, empowered, conquering uh, glory. Or he could have at least proposed that he like come with some of the luxuries that Satan tries to tempt him with, right? No weakness, ruling cities, his angels protecting him. He could have at least asked for that. Or he could have at least come with some of the things that he enjoyed for a moment at the Mount of Transfiguration. All of these things were his rights. All of them. He could have done any one of these things and he chose not to insist on them. Why? When you read verse six, here's why. It starts off with though, and you could be tempted to read this like Jesus is making a concession here, but that's not what that means. Though, though he was in the form of God, he kicked rocks and became a human. That's not what it means. That's not what he's saying. No, the second person of the Trinity, the son of God didn't make a concession here. He didn't prefer to come another way. It would be better to read verse six like precisely because Jesus was in the form of God, he emptied himself. Precisely because the preexistent Christ being equal with God shared the divine glory in heaven. And catch this, it was precisely because of equality with God, precisely because of who he was, he chose and decided not to leverage that fact that he was God as a matter of getting more and taking advantage of more, but instead from a heart of infinite perfection and infallible truthfulness and freedom from sin, he did not need to be served for this reason. What was there for him to grasp after? Nothing. He didn't grasp onto it, keeping it for his own advantage, but instead Jesus expresses the heart of God by overflowing himself in, divine, in his divine nature by giving and serving us. He overflowed in giving. Now let's move to the depths to which Jesus stooped. That's the heights from which he stooped. What are the depths from which Jesus stooped? What defines Jesus's humility is the fact that it is mainly a conscious act of putting himself in this lowly servant's role this lowly role for the good of others. His humility was defined by this statement. He emptied himself, taking on a servant. So let's look how he, how he emptied himself. So we've already established that um, this doesn't mean that he's emptied himself of his divinity. So we can set that aside. So what does it mean that he emptied himself then? Well, read it again. Look at verse seven. Put your eyes on verse seven. Let's read that again. Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. 
Jesus emptied himself. How? By taking. He was emptied by taking on more because he took the form of a servant. Like this is just straight up a brain bender, right? He emptied himself by taking. That's subtraction by addition. Like this doesn't make any sense, right? This seems absolutely impossible for us to imagine. How does one empty themselves by taking on more? And part of our problem here, and something we have to admit when we come up to the the incarnation is um, when we step towards this mystery is we in like we invariably step toward it as a human, right? Like naturally, we are humans. And we step towards this problem in our humanity. And it seems impossible to us. However, this would be the wrong perspective to take. You can't approach it from the bottom up. See, I think it's important for us to acknowledge that the incarnation was initiated from above, not from below. Meaning a human was not trying to be fully God right? Like that totally seems impossible for us, right? The incarnation from our perspective seems impossible because there's no way you can go beyond your limits. We know ourselves. We know we're fallible. We know we're broken. We know we're our mistakes. We always, all of us are trying to be more and do more and be more and better and all these sort of things. And we know our limitations. We know that we're limited. We know we can only do so much. And there's no way you can elevate yourself to this godlike figure. How can a human being ever be God as if that's even what happened. But for God to become human, that's entirely different. That's entirely different. He is unlimited. Therefore, he's able to take on the lesser of the two. A man did not ascend to divinity, nor did God elevate a human to divinity. God emptied himself. How else would you describe Jesus? in his splendor and divine form of God, taking on himself the form of a lowly servant. That's subtraction by addition. He made himself powerless. He made himself ineffective. He made himself embrace insignificance. He allowed abuse and suffering against himself by taking the form of a servant. We can talk through more theological categories here. We can talk through heresies. We can walk through more related to this issue, but... We can go like dozens of different directions here. I think what we most need is to look at them, to actually look at this in action. So would you turn with me to John chapter 13? Turn to John 13. That's to the left of Philippians in your Bible. I want us to see this self-emptying posture of Jesus. So this is the account of Jesus in the upper room washing his disciples' feet just before Jesus performs his ultimate act of service by dying on the cross. He oddly takes time to wash his disciples' feet. Before we get to the feet washing, um, take a look how John prefaces what Jesus does. John 13, verse three. Look at verse three with me. Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. So here we have Jesus. He's in the upper room. He clearly is aware of where he came from. He knows he is the pre-incarnate Christ who created all things. He knows that he was one with the Father, that he is glorious. He knows who he is. He knows what his purpose is. 
He knows why he's there. He has set his face to Jerusalem. He is on a mission. He has come to die and to take the sins of humanity and to set us free. He knows all that. He also has all the power, it says. He has all the might. He has all the rights that were rightfully his as God. Man, this is a huge statement. Don't overlook this like preface before he goes on to the feet wash. And this is a huge declaration. Here sat the form of God face to face with his disciples, with all the power and might of God. Then what does it say he did immediately after that? Jesus gets up and is driven to demonstrate this unique and divine nature and purpose by doing something absolutely matchless. He does something here that is very, very, very godlike. Something that seems odd to us, something we wouldn't naturally do, is very godlike. What does he do? Verse 4 He rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He washes his disciples' feet. This was a servant's task. Like this is dirty, stinky, dusty feet. This is the low of the low of the servant's tasks, right? And Jesus assumes it. Jesus, the incarnate son of God, the one sent for a divine purpose, the one whom Colossians 1 says, through whom all things were created, the one who says all things are still being held together, which is to say right now, Jesus is holding the world together and simultaneously he's washing his disciples' feet. Jesus doesn't lose who he is when he serves. He demonstrates who he is. He demonstrates who he is. Our humility, if there is any at all in us, is based on our finiteness, our fallibility, our our needing to be humbled, our sinfulness. We can be humble or humiliated because we aren't enough, but the eternal son of God was not fallible. He was not sinful. He didn't need to serve. He gets up here to wash his disciples' feet because he wants us to see that what he's doing here, this menial task, a task for a servant, actually confirms who he is and what he's come to do. He wants to show you the love of his father. I want you to see that Jesus gets up to wash their feet because he is eager to demonstrate to you. He's eager to demonstrate his power and his strength and his loving and his grace and his free and full, his fullness and satisfaction, so much so that he's overflowing in service and giving. He has a self-sacrificing, self-pouring out, self-emptying kind of love. That's the God we see in scripture. That's Jesus. And I wanna end our time by looking at three encouragements that we can draw from this text. Paul starts chapter two by saying, hey, if there's any encouragement, he's speaking to the church in Philippi and he's saying, I want you to be encouraged to be unified as the people of God. I want you to live lives that are unified and self-sacrificing and serving one another and he knows we can't conjure it up on our own. So he gives us the picture of Jesus here to stir up affections towards serving and ministering and living for the good of one another. So I wanna give us three encouragements as we consider Jesus's um, self-emptying, sacrificing love. First, 
If Jesus is fully God, then Jesus shows us what the Father is like. But also, if Jesus is fully man, then he also shows us what it truly, truly, truly means to live fully human. And he intends us to follow his lead. And part of what it means to live fully as a human, as God originally intended, is to live in humble obedience to God the Father, to obey him as Jesus does. And yet humility, according to the regular testimony of scripture, is not something you can just conjure up and just do on your own. But as we consider positive examples of those who have humbled themselves through scripture, like Josiah and Hezekiah and Rehoboam and Ahab, as well as all the other like negative examples of those who didn't humble themselves, what becomes clear is that humbling first belongs to the hand of God. He initiates the humbling of his creatures. And once he has, the question then confronts us. And the question for us this morning is, will you humble yourself under the hand of God? Will you receive his humbling? Will you humble yourself or kick against the goats? Humble yourself, writes Peter in 1 Peter 5, 6, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. See, first his hand descends to humble us and then it's our turn. Will we embrace it? And will we humble ourselves before him? When there's opportunities to give rather than take, when there's opportunities to bless rather than speak ill, when you're seen as less, when you don't get what you want, when you're wrong, when you're weak, when you're like seen as the bad guy in a situation, misunderstood, misinterpreted, uh, maligned, all of those sorts of things. Remember all of this and more happened to Jesus and much more. So responding like Jesus and serving and blessing and giving in response to them is not less than what God has called you to be and do. It is your calling. It is the way you ought to respond. When we see the humility of Christ on display, when we see him washing his disciples' feet, he is not like uh, denigrating humanity here. He's actually calling us toward it. Far from it, he's allowing the image of God to shine fuller through his self-sacrifice and in showing us how to live as image bearers of God, to live whole, to live joyful. To humble ourselves then is not to be less than human. Rather, it's this, it's this pride that's actually the cancer in our lives, not humility that pride would corrode our true dignity. So look to Christ and humble yourselves. Come ever closer, little by little, day by day, into this full flourishing and becoming more and more conformed to his image. Look to the example of Christ and be conformed into his image. Second encouragement. The humility of Christ also clarifies that not all of your humblings in this life are because of your sin. I think that's helpful for us to name. All the places where you need to humble yourself aren't necessarily because of your sin. Jesus did not sin and yet he humbled himself. Now, oftentimes repentance has to follow uh, our humblings because sin is often attached to them. But um, sometimes it's our first step from being humbled. But other times repentance isn't required at all because you have not sinned. Sometimes God wants to put his finger on something in your life. Sometimes he wants you to mature in a particular aspect. Sometimes he wants you to let something go. Sometimes he wants to get you somewhere else because of something else he has planned for you down the road. Something 
like sometimes the difficulty and the, uh, the, the like bumpiness of this life and the places where you're humbled, like you face these like Job situations, right? Where everyone around you is pretty sure that you did something wrong here. Everyone's pretty sure and pretty confident. And they're talking about this bad situation in your life. And they're trying to give you advice and try to convince you that you did something wrong. Humble yourself under the hand of God there. But that doesn't necessarily mean you have to repent of your sin. You should be slow. You should be reflective. You should ask God to show you um, and to reveal to you in light of his word. But to, you know, repent here when you don't believe that you sinned is equal to lying. Um, in either case, Jesus was sinless and yet he still humbled himself before God. All right, let's look at one more. Lastly, Jesus's humility sets you free. What we see here is Jesus's humility sets you free. Since the beginning of humanity, humanity has believed the lie from Satan that the creator's motives are suspect and selfish, right? That's our impulse. And it's been given to us by our ancestors, Adam and Eve. God made us in his image, but yet he's holding out on us, right? Adam was created in the image of God and he was told and foolishly believed that to be significant meant that he needed to pursue a life of grasping and taking and um, um, receiving and stacking things up in order for him to be significant. He needed more in order to be godlike. To find significance, he had to make himself significant. This is, this is how our world works. Like this is the, the, the workplace you live in. This is your family. This is your neighbors. This is how the world works. And Jesus reminds us of this, that societies will operate on this self, this same self-serving assumption. Matthew 20, 25 says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their greatest ones exercise authority over them. See, there are the haves and the have-nots in this realm. There are the haves and the have-nots, and the way you become the have is by grasping whatever you can and pushing down others so that you get what you want, right? At work, you do what you must to climb the ladder. You step on the next, you can climb the ladder. At home, you throw your weight around, or you pull rank, or you manipulate to get ultimately what you want. At church, we look a certain way so others will think highly of us. But Jesus continues in verse 26 saying, this will not be so among you. This should, not, this should not be how the church operates. This won't be among my people. Whoever would be great among you, he says, must be your servant. You must be a servant if you're going to be great in my kingdom. You see, Jesus took the form of a servant and he invites you to do the same. While we, just like Adam, are created in the image of God, Jesus was in the very form of God. He was God. And while we, just like Adam, grasp at equality with God, Jesus didn't use his divinity to his own advantage. Instead, Jesus humbled himself, taking the low position in order to serve and not be served. And just like Adam, if we live our lives aiming to be self-sufficient apart from God, living our lives taking and reaching for our own significance apart from God, what happened to Adam? It led him to death. Death, separation from God himself. But Jesus, but Jesus in verse eight says, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
How do you view yourself? How significant are you? How important are you? Like, how do you view yourself? He was humble by obeying the Father over and over and over and over. He humbled himself and was born of a virgin. He humbled himself and obeyed his parents. He humbled himself and lived 30 years of seemingly insignificance. Nobody knew him. He humbled himself and literally lived as a man. He humbled himself and blessed and served the crowds. He humbled himself and gave and fed people and did miracles. He humbled himself and was betrayed. He humbled himself and was um, turned on by everyone he knew. He humbled himself and took on all your sins. He humbled himself even to the point, it says, that he died on a traitor's cross. He emptied himself over and over to the point of death, even death on a traitor's cross. He lived a perfect life, like giving life. And he died a life-giving death so that we could be served by him to be brought into relationship with the Father so we could have eternal life with him. That was his mission. That was his goal. He says in Mark 10, 45, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. He didn't need you. He didn't need you to serve him. He didn't need you to do anything for him. He doesn't need you to do anything for him. He came to serve your greatest need. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, for many, for all those who would see him and not be scandalized by him, for all that would see this and not be turned off by, but actually see it as their only hope, as the thing that they desperately need by all those who will humble themselves under the hand of God and admit that they need him to serve them, that you need served by this kind of king, that you need served by this kind of Lord. Jesus's humility was voluntarily lowering himself to make the heights of his glory available to you, you as a sinner, so that you can have joy in him forever. That's, that's the gospel of Jesus. That's why Jesus came. That's why he counted it worth it to empty himself for us. Let me pray for us and then we'll close. Why don't you stand with me? Jesus, you gave and gave and gave until it ended on your, at your death. You poured everything out for us. Jesus, you are God and you most fully reveal the truth about God for us, that God is love and that his love expresses itself in self-sacrifice, cruel, humiliating death on a cross for the sake of those you love. This is unbelievable. And it's our only hope. It's our only hope. So God, right now, would you humble us under your hand that we would see you as you truly are, glorious and willing to be close to us. And you, you did the thing that was required to allow us to be close to you. You took on our sin and you put it to death so that we can live pure and clean before you forever. 
God, would you give us eyes of faith to see that, to glory in that, to count you as worth it, to live humble lives before you and one another. Would you create in us a church family that counts others more important than ourselves, that we would bless one another, serve one another, care for one another, serve one another, give to one another, because it is the mind of Christ. Would you do that among us? Would you would you like make us marvel at you so that we would be unified and image you to one another and to a watching world? We pray in your name, amen. We're now going to take communion. If, if what I've just shared with you is your only hope, if you put your faith in Jesus as your only hope, this morning we invite you to come and take communion. Communion is a picture, it's a symbol, it's a it's a, it's a meal that every single week we tear a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup because we're saying Jesus emptied his life, took on flesh and broke his body so that we could have communion with God. So I tear a piece of the bread because his body was broken for me and I dip it in the cup because his blood was shed for me. And then I, in like a self-humiliating way, I eat it because it's my only hope. It humbles us to go... God had to die in order for me to be close to him, to be redeemed. It's like this, like, it's like this um, way of taking in this truth and saying, I'm condemned because of my sin because of this. But then also to go on the other side, I'm lifted up because the son of God loved me, counted me worth it, um, saw me and moved toward me to die for even me, a sinner, he died for even me, someone who rejected him and was an enemy of God. And he broke his body and shed his blood for me. It lifts you up and reminds you of his love and his desire for communion with you. And so we take that into, with joy and with um, unity that we as a body of Christ, that that's our only hope. I mean, if that's your claim this morning, then we invite you to come and take communion. If you have not placed your faith in Jesus and we ask you to stay where you are, uh, if that's not your hope, then to do this would just be an empty ritual. And we invite you to not do something uncomfortable or is not aligned with your beliefs. So you're free to stay where you are. But at this time, uh, those who are serving communion can come forward. Um, the way you take communion here is tear a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup. The stoneware is wine and the glass is juice. And... Um, yeah, those who want to come and take communion can come now.